0: Today, on episode number 424 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Severance, with Rob Park and Michael Boyce. Produced by Innovate Learning, Maximizing Human Potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art, and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm excited for two very special guests to be joining me for today's episode. Rob Park returns to teaching in higher ed. He's an associate professor of information technology practice at the University of Southern California. Rob established the Connected Devices and Making minor to teach non-engineering students to create internet-enabled hardware devices. And he currently serves as lead faculty for the Gateway Programming course, whose mission is to introduce and excite non-computer science majors to the world of programming. Rob has a strong interest in inclusive teaching practices and has been actively involved in addressing issues of inclusion and equity, both within the University of Southern California and externally. He served as the general chair of the 2021 cmd Richard Tapia Celebration of Diversity in Computing Conference, which encourages and supports diversity within computing. Outside of academia, Rob has a lifelong love of technology from the technical to the creative with professional experience in software development, information technology, web design, audio engineering, film, TV post-production, and digital media. Dr. Michael W. Boyce is Professor of English Literature and Film Studies at Booth University College in Winnipeg, Canada. He's currently vice president, academic, and dean, a position he's held since 2017. He teaches a wide selection of courses, including film history, British film, religion and popular culture, fantasy literature, and television studies, film adaptation, film noir, and film genre. He writes on post-war British film, Bond, television, and popular culture. He encourages his faculty to engage in public scholarship and, to that end, Michael was recently featured in the documentary film The Science Fiction Makers. Rousseau, Lewis, and Lengel, and has, since 2019, hosted the podcast Geek 4, which looks at fans, fandoms, and fan cultures. Today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed is different than our usual structure in that we're going to be talking about a television show called Severance, one that you don't need to have watched to enjoy the first part of our conversation. We will be protective of any types of spoilers that would ruin the first and only, at this time, season for you. So I encourage you to listen to today's episode as we consider what might this fictitious television show tell us about higher education today? And we will go on to share the recommendations for the show. And then at the end of today's episode, we have an extended special opportunity for you to hear some of the spoilers if you've either watched the show or don't care if we ruin certain parts of the plot for you before you watch Rob Park, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. And Michael Boyce, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much, Bonnie. It's great to be back.
0: Michael and Rob, thank you for being willing to join in this conversation about severance. And I want to start out with Michael asking you to tell us a little bit about the premise of this show.
2: Well, people should absolutely plan to watch this show because it's fascinating. Yeah, the main character is Mark Scout. He is the main character, and uh, he is promoted to the division head of his department early on. It is the story of the team of office workers whose memories have been surgically divided between their work and their personal lives. And when a mysterious colleague appears outside of work, it begins a journey to discover the truth about what their jobs actually are.
0: And Rob, I know you have a little bit more to share with us in terms of what what on earth is this surgery thing going on? What tell us a little bit more about Severance, the whole premise behind the name of the show.
1: So, yeah, Severance is, is this company where there is a surgical device implanted in their in their brain and when they cross a the threshold and go to the their work floor, their basement, this sort of chip in their brain switches and so they're Their memories are switched off, so they become essentially a different person from who they are in the outside world. And so each respective person has no memory of that other time.
0: We are going to be exploring today what would it look like if higher education or perhaps how does it already look like in higher education if our brains were somehow severed in the same or a similar way? So if we only had memories at work of the people we knew at work and the people who we knew ourselves to be at work, and then if we only had memories outside of work and our sense of identity with who we interact with outside of work—that's the questions and things we're going to be pondering on today's episode. And I want to hear from each of you, and we'll start with Michael. What is it that captured your attention about this show?
2: Well, I had heard about this show, but it was it was your invitation to watch it and to come on the podcast. So I was kind of watching it with the framework that you'd you'd mentioned, academics, and um, just thinking of that separation of our personal lives and professional lives because that's something actually personally that I've kind of struggled with over the years and I've kind of made a conscious choice to be I think reasonably appropriately more open with my students in order to encourage them to bring up things that might be affecting their work. Uh, I think we all have students who you know disappear and and don't let us know what's going on in their lives and then come in you know come back when the grades are in and say oh yeah i had this problem and you know if you come to me early i can help you if you come to me late I, I can't i'm i'm a little bit limited so i've tried to model a kind of openness and that's you know met with some resistance in the institution you know we don't necessarily like people bringing in their personal life but i you know i was just fascinated by that whole idea of the personal and professional separation
0: and Rob, I know that when you and I, and especially Jackie and our other friends get together, we're always sharing great shows. For, so for all I know, you're the one <laughs> who told me to watch Severance. Do you remember why you got interested in it at first?
1: So I love, I, I like sci-fi shows in general and high concept shows. So again, like I love the Westworld. And so I was intrigued by the premise, just by the, the trailer. But then watching the show during the pandemic, and experiencing our institutions in a way and changing work culture, the sort of depth of the concept became more interesting to me, even than the the, the tech of it. it was more kind of like, oh, my gosh, this is a playing out in some ways in our world. <laughs> so I think that's what kind of hooked me or kept me, kept me interested, actually, afterward.
0: Yeah. And I'm going to be sharing a little bit about this in the recommendation segment, but I don't tend to gravitate towards science fiction as a genre. But it really was the show's premise, this idea of we so often have this quest to have work-life balance, whatever that means. And I had a colleague and friend, Andy Stenhouse, who came on the show previously to talk about really, that that doesn't exist. It is not like this scale that somehow we might find a perfect balance for. But a lot of the research instead calls this work-life spillover, our personal lives (laughs) spilling over into our work lives and our work lives spilling over into our personal lives. And he talks about the research saying that can happen in positive ways, and it can happen in negative ways. So for me, as you just mentioned, Rob, the idea of This taking place in the pandemic, in a higher education context, in my own work life, in my own family life, so much of it completely resonated with me. Mm -hmm. And this is the time now in our conversation where we're going to look at the question. This is the whole premise for today's episode, which is, what if higher education had severance as a procedure available to people, or are there ways in which higher education as a system already makes attempts to sever us in some ways. And Rob, I know you have some thoughts on this as it relates to work-life balance.
1: Yeah, and I really quick to, just wanted to add, for case anyone's turned off, this is not a sci-fi show. I, I think I was intrigued by that concept because we described the surgical device, but it is really not. That's just, the, that's just the thing that happens. So if you're like, I don't watch sci-fi shows, so it's not my thing, this is not. If you just accept that there's this chip, and the rest of the show is quite fascinating and doesn't really involve what might be sci-fi. So, just a disclaimer in case anyone was turned off. I, yeah, I think the work-life balance is really a fascinating thing in, in higher ed. I I know that I don't have a very good good boundaries, and I, I do try very hard. And so, in one sense, there's something, you know, if you if you dis, if you dismiss the rest of the show, there's something sort of on the on the surface level attractive about this hard firewall boundary between like your, you know, your work time and your, and your lifetime. I think especially as academics for many of us work on weekends and work on at night and seem to just answer emails and all the time and being expected to then respond all the time. And so having that hard boundary is, seems like, Oh, that could be really great. But then to sort of separate it is, is unnatural. And I, I, as I was rewatching parts of the show for this and taking notes, like the first thing, I think, in the first episode as one of the characters is is transitioning to the outside of the inner. I was like, <laughs> the work life balance is a fallacy, like it doesn't exist basically which which is why I was struck bonnie by what your colleague said that there's spillover,
0: yeah, and I think you you used the adjective good when you said I don't have good boundaries, and I instantly wanted to say. What would it look like if you had good boundaries? And what do you think about in terms of when you have bad boundaries? And you sort of gave examples of that. Is that checking emails on weekends or nights? And I think part of this is wanting to look at this both as individuals setting up for ourselves boundaries that work for us. Because a lot of times when people interject their own opinions about what my work-life balance may look like, don't always remember how much joy I find in the work that I do. So I try to be gentle with myself in terms of what does good or bad look like when it comes to boundaries. But then we also want to think about the ways in which our workplaces as systems may wind up reinforcing or incenting things that don't ultimately lead to us being able to thrive in our work and instead can contribute to burnout, uh, turnover, etc. So, Michael, what are you thinking about? What's bouncing around in your head as far as this idea of work-life balance?
2: I think like a lot of really good sci-fi, and I I like sci-fi as well, it takes an idea and it just it just changes it just a little bit. And I think, you know, we've all identified there is a need for work-life balance of some kind. And so the idea is initially appealing. The way it manifests is kind of disturbing and deeply unsettling. But yeah, I mean, that's something I've struggled with kind of coming up as a professor for the last, I've been 15 years, I guess. And then moving into academic administration, it's really important for me that I model some kind of work-life balance, not only for the students that I still have, I still teach occasionally, but also for my faculty. Like, and setting boundaries, like in all of my syllabi, it kind of indicates how long it will take me to respond to emails. And that's like setting up expectations for work-life balance. I also started something a few years ago and I don't remember any professor I had as an undergraduate doing this. Maybe it was just me. Maybe I saw somebody do it, I can't remember or I actually gave a timeline for grading. You know, you can expect grading to be done within a week or two because I needed that work-life balance. It's really it's really interesting to me that the academy as a whole doesn't have a lot of checks and balances to ensure faculty kind of take care of themselves. And, you know, if they, if they you know, need time off or they need uh, longer to do things, we don't really have ways of doing that. I think a lot of push on student-centric teaching almost encourages bad boundaries.
0: Rob, what would it look like to use some version of severance to achieve greater work-life balance? And what problems might we see were we to be able to achieve that, 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 that more severe separation?
1: So, you know, I have, uh, in talking with colleagues, I, I think there's a culture of just going to go hard for nine months, with very little boundaries and then I'm off in the summer. So I I hear that from, from colleagues a lot. And they're kind of unreachable and uh, in a different way, that is kind of a kind of severance. But I think the drawback of an approach like that is that then um, you're pretty burned out for those nine months. So I, I almost would say that my, my sense is that the the creators of the show again, and it's not revealing anything. It seems like this, they're not saying this is a good, a good idea. And I, I tend to, I having watched the show and enjoyed it a lot. I think that that full separation is unhealthy, like that completely walling off and becoming a a different person. So I I almost what Michael would say, I would say, or I said, you know, that I love the idea of setting expectations of like, this is when I'm going to be available. So it's probably more work to actually set up a, a system of this is when I can get back to you. This is when I'm available. Um, and then in teaching people around you, like, I'm on vacation for this week. And that means I am actually on vacation. And if there's an emergency, I suspect you have many talented people to take care of it because I will not be responding. So I, I, I think that's just you know, my humble opinion. is That's probably the only way to make that work is to actually do the work <laughs> to set that up and, and an artificial system like in this show is uh, um, leads to all sorts of unintended negative consequences.
0: Michael, we've been looking at the ways that we may or may not wish to sever ourselves or the ways in which we might be asked to do that in terms of our roles as faculty members and administrators. What, when it comes to students, do you think about in terms of the ways that we ask them to sever the less convenient parts of their identities? And I, and I. By the way, I say the word "convenient" in air quotes, in case someone can't <laughs> hear me doing <laughs> that. Yes, yes. <laughs> the, the drawbacks
2: of an audio medium. This is one that I've thought a lot about over the years. I think we we've all had that those conversations with colleagues about how students are less prepared, and you know they're 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 not as committed as they used to be. And I maybe there's truth to that. I'm not sure. I also think that we're becoming increasingly aware of the complexity of our students' lives. More of our students are working almost full-time hours trying to be full-time students and also trying to have a full-time social life. And they're trying to balance all this stuff. I just think like, you know, especially during pandemic, I just saw so many examples of students who were dealing with Things that I could never have imagined dealing with as an undergraduate student, and I found myself increasingly compassionate, and you know I, I definitely have those conversations with faculty members who are like, well, maybe they're maybe they're abusing the system, and I'm like, well, you know if they are, then you know I would rather err on the side of compassion at this point than kind of punitively treat students who are maybe trying to get a a workaround for something. so like I just think students being open again, appropriately about the challenges that they're facing that are preventing them from doing the best work possible is a really important thing that we need to, they can't sever themselves. (laughs) They really can't.
0: You talking about that transparency reminds me of when Tracy Addy was on the show, and she talked about this survey that they've been not only conducting, but actually doing some research on called the Who's in Class Survey. And I tried it for the first time in the last semester and really did find that to be a good mechanism to get a better pulse on things. I may have known in the past, for example, when students were commuters, But there is a huge difference between I live 10 minutes down the road and I drive two hours and it provided me some nuance that I hadn't had in the past. And Rob, before we get to the recommendation segment and then the spoiler section of today's episode for the first time ever in Teaching in Higher Ed, I did want to ask you to comment about grief. Grief comes up quite often in the show as a theme across many of the characters, and I can still remember being 23 years old. And my parents are still married now. They got married when they were 20 and 21, so divorce hasn't really been something that has struck my family or, or my life very closely. So I remember working with this guy who not only was a vice president the company I worked for, but he was married to somebody else who worked in the company, also at the vice president level. And I can still remember them getting divorced and thinking, wait, but they both, I think think maybe at the time, I this is when I first discovered that companies will give you like two days of bereavement. But I thought like, Wait, you get two days off to process a death or a divorce? Like how, like, how does that, how does this really work? I was so naive at the time and totally didn't understand it. So, Rob, before we get on to the cheerful topics, potentially, of our recommendations, mm-hmm. uh, what do you have to share with us about the ways in which we might be asking faculty to sever in some ways about their jobs when it comes to grief or other difficulties in their lives?
1: So there's a quote which I'm going to paraphrase, so not to reveal anything from the show, that I think starts this off, which is one one person is saying to another person, the person who is participating in severance, that forgetting about this tragedy that you experience for eight hours a day isn't the same as healing, mm-hmm. and that really struck me a lot, and it, it ties into like how are you doing? And most many of the times we just expect the, oh I'm fine, you know, which cuts off the door of all of this in this case, the years of the grief of the pandemic, whether that's, you know, economic, racial, financial pain, but that applies, you know, even in, in other times where we ask students, oh, how are you doing? And then we kind of move on to the to the course where we, every day we start teaching a class and just start start with the content as though, you know, we're not people, we're we're almost severed and we are, you know, we are communicating robots and they are learning robots and there's no what are you going through? What are you what are you grieving and experiencing? And so that part really ties into me with what we talked about before and cutting off sort of their life and not acknowledging grief. I think most, many of us and our especially our institutions don't deal with grief well. And mm-hmm. so it's something that we're it's uncomfortable that we want things to be, you know, sort of improved. I mean, so I was going to mention this in the, the recommendations, but I have a I have a physical disability. So it's it's a lifetime Thing. And and my experience has been that people are, are very you know always been very kind, but we we don't do well with things that are long term that are not resolved quickly, right? So it's like someone injures their foot, and we're like, how are you doing? And then they get better, and they ask a couple times. But with with grief or something chronic, it's especially with the loss of a, a you know a partner or a friend or something that's not resolved in a week. That's not resolved in a month. You know, even a year, and so. We're not able to, I think we just, you know, I want to put myself too. we don't know how to kind of consistently be present for people to just sort of sit with them when, when tragedy has happened and there's nothing to say, but to be a presence and then to, to check on them in a month and just say, how are you doing? And then in six months, right, we've all sort of moved on. And so I, I've, I experienced that institutionally. Also, you know, I'm not, I'm putting myself on the same level. I, I have the same sort of challenge, I think so having to then go back to teach or, or to learn at the same time. Like, I think it's hard. We don't really acknowledge that Uh, the difficulty of that. We don't want the messiness of it because it's not a, a clean, Oh, your car broke down. Your car is fixed. So everything's fine. We can go back to teaching. It's like, Oh, you, your grandparent passed away and you know, they were the most important person in your large family and it's been two weeks. So you should be able to take this test now again. Right. I mean, I feel like that's kind of where we often come from. And then as a probably as faculty, as is, is similar faculty and staff, like you said, there's a couple of day bereavement and then, all right, chop, chop, get back to whatever you're supposed to do here. And that's just unnatural.
0: Well, this is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And my first one is a more general mindset that I'm really trying to challenge myself on. And that is that we rethink our likes and our dislikes. Before I would have heard about this show and and Rob I don't think you're the only one who might mention it in the genre of sci-fi I think I think a lot of people would and and my next recommendations are going to be in the genre of sci-fi I would have assumed oh that's not for me and there was an episode where somebody recommended the book Dune this was a long long ago I think even before the movie came out of that recently and I could describe I hadn't read Dune since I was maybe I don't know, 11 or 12 years old or something, and I literally described a scene so vividly from the book from having read it all that long ago and never even looked it up in on Wikipedia or anything. That just came out spontaneously, and I thought, if you have that vivid memories about a book like that, I could totally remember reading it, and trust me, there's a lot I can't remember reading. And if you like Severance so much, and then what I'm about to recommend, if you like those books so much... You might just like science fiction and just not realize it. So to that end, my next two recommendations were inspired by Julia Charles Lennon. When she was on the show, she recommended all of Octavia Butler's books. And she said, please read them. And yes, you can thank me later or something like that and made me chuckle so much. That was back on episode 419. And then I asked her during that conversation if she had a place because she was not the first person to recommend Octavia's books. And so I asked her, is there a good starting point? And she recommended the two book series called Parable of the Sower and then Parable of the Talents. And I'd like to recommend both of those books. It has been such a long time since I got completely swept up in a book like that, where I literally would just be thinking about what is the next opportunity I will have to sneak away from whatever it is I'm doing. It consumed so much of my imagination. Part of the time we were actually on a short vacation as a family and so that was really fun dave would take the kids and i would just be sitting there like okay um you run along now so i can finish reading the book it was it completely was so good and so those are afrofuturism books uh, more specifically and i can't recommend them enough just absolutely gorgeous beautiful thought provoking reads so highly recommend and rob i'm going to pass it over to you now for whatever you would like to recommend
1: Thanks, thanks, Bonnie. I have two books to recommend. It's since I'm, you know, since this the summer I'm trying to catch up on the, the reading or listening rather to audiobooks that I, I don't get to do. So forgive me if I, I mispronounce the authors' names, but the two that I really enjoyed recently were A Thousand Ships by Natalie Haynes. It's basically a retelling of the Trojan War from like an all-female perspective. So it's kind of encompasses the Iliad and the Odyssey and, and a bunch of other classical plays that I I wasn't familiar with but it's it's really fascinating it's it's moving it's also funny at times and it's stories that you might remember from if you read these in high school or college the Iliad and the Odyssey but all of the it's all of the characters who typically are you know are ignored so those stories are from the male you know, hero, you know, hero perspective but these are sort of like rich compelling female characters that are present in in the Trojan War or the, or the the go- the goddesses or other characters. And so not only are their characters rich and just really engaging, but you also see the, the sort of the human cost of suffering in war and conquest. So it's, it's really, it was really gripping. I really enjoyed it a lot. And the second book is, is called Deaf Utopia. And I, I may be pronouncing pre- 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 this, Anil DeMarco. So he's a, a man who, his story is really moving. It's kind of a memoir about growing up deaf. And he talks about the vibrant deaf community, the beauty of ASL, which is kind of like a native language, and as well as kind of exploring sexuality. And so, you know, in particular, the the, the part about the deaf community I've always been intrigued by as someone has a physical disability myself. So learning about that community and the, the richness of it was really intriguing. And though I, you know, I don't understand the deaf experience and it was interesting to sort of hear his perspective, I was also kind of moved by the similarities and sort of, you know, how to deal with the educational medical professional systems when when you're different and you're you're treated differently and how powerful it can be when we can tear down the barriers that would keep basically people from thriving so in in his particular case like with or being able to learn asl and and communicate natively like that and and other kinds of things so i I resonated a lot with that so i i think these are both books that i think anyone could enjoy without any particular uh background
0: Oh, thank you so much, Rob. They sound wonderful. And Michael, what do you have to recommend for us today?
1: I wish I had books to recommend, but one of
2: my pandemic body responses is I, I lost the ability to read for fun, watch movies for fun, or TV for fun. TVs come back, movies are okay. I still can't read. So what I have, I have two things and they're they're kind of connected. I am about comfort. Even when I moved into academic administration, I'm like, I walk to work. So those like fancy attache cases, even one with a strap, doesn't work for me. It throws my shoulder off. I can't do it. So I bought a brand new backpack the other day and it is amazing. It's T-Z-Z for you Americans. O-W-L-A business backpack. It looks nice. It's charcoal gray. It's very compact. You can fit a 15 inch laptop as well as my iPad and everything else. It also has a USB charging Thing for your phone and as an anti-theft locking device, which uh, I was able to set for 007 because I am a James Bond scholar, amongst Mm -hmm. other things. And you can now break in my backpack if you ever find it. (laughs) And then the other thing, (laughs) I'm also about comfort. um, I am highly going to recommend. It's a Canadian Mm -hmm. company, shoe company called Vessi. They make the most comfortable shoes I've ever worn in my life. They're from the from the West Coast of Canada, so they're um, uh, Vancouver based, I believe, and they are. Tight, tight tight-knit, slip-on. They look good enough you can wear with dress clothes. I always do. And they're waterproof, and they're the most comfortable shoes I've ever worn. So I'm going to give a shout-out to Vessi.
0: Wonderful. Well, this is the point in the show where we are going to say goodbye to those of you who would like Mm -hmm. to watch Severance someday and experience it anew. I do come from a family where my mother always read the end of a book first to see if it was worth her actually reading. So if you want to listen... I don't think we're going to ruin the show. We just might give you some clues of some things that you would (laughs) encounter along the way. But if you would like to be delighted and surprised by some of the unexpected things that come up on Severance, now's the time for you to say goodbye to us and maybe return to us someday in the future after you've watched it. And if you do watch it, we want to hear from you because we want to hear about how it goes. But goodbye to those of you who are saying goodbye now. And we are going into the special extended version of Teaching in Higher Ed episode 424. Here we go, extended version, and now we're going to look at some spoilers that come up and some more things that we wanted to say. Let's begin talking about employee incentives. Michael and Rob, what do you remember about the ridiculous things that they reward their employees with at Lumen?
2: they talk about the waffle party. And then when you actually see the waffle party, it's kind of a letdown given all the other parties. I liked the the defiant jazz party myself, but yeah, like this idea that there are these little incentives that if you, if you do your work, well, you can, you can, you can get this stuff. And I remember as a faculty member, just talking to my then VP academic, like, if you just gave me a t-shirt with the school logo on it, I would really like that. I was like, that was a sad incentive, honestly. Um, Yeah.
0: The best article that I have ever read about incentives comes from many decades ago. Stephen Kerr wrote, he was from Ohio State University, on the folly of rewarding A while hoping for B. (laughs) This is the top by far journal article that I have thought about probably almost on a daily basis at different points in my life, but certainly on a weekly basis. It's where we think well, we want to be good at teamwork and then all of our incentives reward individual performance and we want to have peace in the world. And then a lot of our incentives would seem to reward more violence and war and all those kinds of things. So this phrase, on the folly of rewarding A while hoping for B, has come up considerably for me both watching this television show because they're trying to reward certain things and then getting what should have been expected results from it as a not great results. But I would highly recommend that article, by the way. And then speaking of that, there is a wellness counselor. And Rob, why don't you tell us, how does the wellness counselor reward employees for doing a good job? Do you remember what, what she told them?
1: Yeah. So in the, the, the innies, their the reward is they get to sit with the wellness counselor and learn random facts about their Audi's life that are trivial they're just as trivial as the incentives they're they're like your Audi is kind to people or your Audi likes uh, you know walking in the park I I don't think that was one of them but it just completely essentially well not not deeply significant things And and they're supposed to just be grateful for that and I I feel like with along with the incentives it's like uh there's a there's a sense that like you this is this is insignificant, but you should be grateful. And the fact that, you know, to your point, like a uh, that is the wellness counselor it's sort of like saying when when institutions are trying to put some sort of band-aid on the deep like we were talking about before, the deep grief that people are mm-hmm. experiencing or just the 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 real life challenges that people are experiencing. And and there's sort of this like band-aid solution of, Oh, oh, here's the you know, here's here's our new wellness program. It's like, well, that's that's like a you know window dressing, basically. Yeah. I think many people would probably, you know, it, a- increased wages or actual you know time off or relieving of some of the work burden. But instead, it's it's something like that, like you said, Michael. Like, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like that's not what. Yeah, that's
0: here's not our new pro- here's
2: our new program. Come come.
0: Yeah, there there's a whole segment that that and you mentioned this actually when you were describing the show, Rob. We don't know what Lumen does. And it sounded like you may have a theory, or maybe I'm sure, probably others have theories too. But you don't, you don't know what Lumen does, and we also don't know what the different departments do. So there's the macro data refinement, what on earth? And then there's the numbers that make you sad that that they're looking for in in Mark's and and Helly's department. So the whole idea of not knowing what the organization does, what its aims are, what its purpose are, and then not knowing what individual departments do yet having this conflict that gets manufactured to keep people more in line so any thoughts that you have about those two themes the fights between the departments or the not understanding what on earth does this company exist for
1: i, I think with the uh, in the places I've, I've experienced in the past you know i'm not going to say that there's manufactured tension between departments as in in the in severance it seems like there actually is but people are are fighting over their you know, they're tiny little territory. And I think, Bonnie, I don't know if it was you or my wife or maybe the two of you should have the quote of like, in academia, the fights are so big because the stakes are so small. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I forget who it was, one of you or someone said that. Not it, me, but I like it. <laughs> it's so it's like we're fighting over things and it seems unnecessary to be competing with other departments and, and not collaborating and being very siloed. And so that's what sort of struck me is like uh, there's, in the show, and again, this is more nefarious than I, I don't put, put this on any place I've been or like this sort of manufacturing tension, I think is a way to sort of like keep the employees focused on the internal battles instead of looking at like, what am I doing actually here? And is there a problem with this Lumen company? So that it seems like I don't think our institutions intentionally do that, I, I hope, but it does kind of keep us focused on, you know, resentment and jealousy and fighting over things that we Like don't need to be fighting over like it's that department's doing this and they took this class from us and they things like that I just I see it in situations a lot and I'm certainly not above it I'm putting myself I'm sure I've gotten in you know just as grumpy about things so it's um, but seeing it in a show like this like oh that seems unnecessary and 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 pointless what's what's the point
0: Rob we've had many times I mean over ten times in recent months where I find myself and this feels so icky to say aloud, but I find myself actually using the word nobody died. And I, I mean that it but I mean I know it sounds terrible, but I need to remind myself that like the, like these really are in in a month from now, will I care about this? Will any of us care about this? But you really can get into this kind of scarcity mindset or learned helplessness. So I really and again I do not mean that Calva I have had dear, dear friends lose loved ones throughout the pandemic. So I do not mean it as cavalierly when people normally say that phrase. I mean it in the truest sense of it. That gives me perspective. Is this actually going to matter so that I don't get tempted to get into these, whether the organization is manufacturing them, whether I am, whether others are, but I don't spin into that and don't allow it to get reinforced in my own thinking and behaving.
2: I don't know about uh, the two of you. Like I, I find that a lot of those things have just been exacerbated by by the pandemic, where mm. people are working remotely. So you don't have the the normal collegial conversations you have in the hallway. People are separated. It's harder to set up a zoom meeting with people. Those meetings feel very different than an in-person kind of stop in somebody's office. And I feel like the tensions are so much higher and and people are much, much more, sensitive to, to those kinds of slights between departments and things like that it just feels like yeah everyone's still a little on edge
0: yeah I definitely see that too well all right we are going to wrap up the show before we end it how about a few minutes on the ending <laughs> speaking of the biggest spoiler Michael why don't you start what do we find out at the end and what are your thoughts and then Rob I want to hear yours and then we'll close the show
2: Okay. Um, The the two big reveals for me, like just mind blowing. There's the final reveal, which is that Mark's wife, who he is grieving has been grieving. And that's why he went in the severance thing is actually the grief counselor. And we have no idea. Is she actually dead? I mean, this, this is a a reality in which there needs to be a physical body. It's not in his mind. It's not a, a, a projection of his imagination. So what's going on is this company so much more nefarious than we believed. And then the realization that Hallie is actually the daughter of the the, the the founder the president of the company and is kind of an inside job because she has been so outspoken as an any about how much she hates it and wants to get out of it mind blown
1: completely mind blown yeah how about you Rob yeah I think those those probably were the really the the pivotal the points I didn't really see those coming I'm sure many many clever watchers m- might have but um the the, the Heli reveal was was really intriguing. I'm, yeah, I'm very curious about what that means, you know, for for the next season. I, I also, more of a minor reveal. I I think I was watching most of the show trying to figure out, like, was his neighbor, Mrs. Selvig, like, was she aware that she was severed? And so she's sort of spying on him, which is a question I have. And then is, you know, is he, is he sort of a distinct special employee that she's spying on because, because they're trying to watch, it seems like there's something about his wife, like they i don't know if it's part of a program or for some reason that he's she's trying to track uh, mrs selving or cobell's trying to track him to see if he remembers and so there seems to be something intriguing about that and then i think Ir- irving's sort of that heartbreaking where he he sees you know christopher walken bert and bert is like has a partner um mm-hmm. out in the outside world and i think that's such a sets up such a rich future season right whereas this, this character who he, you know, kind of had an attraction to or, or um, starting to develop a, you know, a love for is, I mean, dead, I guess, it's at least as we know, because that the any in, the Bert doesn't exist anymore. Mm. Um, so I could see wanting that back. But then he now has actually had an, an actual partner and family outside. So what is what would it mean to try to get that back? I feel like that was a really intriguing, and kind of heartbreaking point to explore, or they will explore hopefully.
0: Yeah, and then the idea of him being the ever rule follower, mm-hmm. and then being confronted with a situation that he does want to break the rules. Both Any and Audi, I believe, wants to break the rules, if mm-hmm. I'm remembering correctly. Uh, yeah, and then he
2: has the map of where people live. Um, yeah, the Audi version of him. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's fascinating. Well, Michael Boyce and Rob Park, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. Uh, Rob, for coming back after such a long time. I mean, you've been back in my life, but just not in some of the listeners' lives. And uh, Michael, what a great pleasure to get to talk to you on a, officially on a podcast for the first time.
2: Thank you so much for the invitation like, and for the recommendation of the show. It was a great
1: show.
0: Oh, I'm so glad.
1: Yeah, Bonnie, I was I was honored to to, to pop back in. So thank you so much. Um, I'm always, always happy to chat with you.
0: What an absolute blast it was to talk with Rob Park and Michael Boyce for today's show. Today's episode was produced by me, Bonnie Stahoviak, and was edited by the ever-talented Andrew Kroger. Podcast production support was provided by a wonderful English teacher, Sierra Smith. These podcast episodes are just one resource from Teaching in Higher Ed. If you'd like to receive our weekly email updates, you can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And in those once weekly emails, you'll receive the show notes from the most recent episode, along with all the great recommendations that came within the episode. But you'll also get bonus recommendations that don't show up on the show, related episodes, and some other goodies. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.